Hello, and welcome to the London Writer Salon podcast. I'm Matt. And I'm Parle. And each week we sit down with a writer that we admire to talk about the craft of writing and the art of building a successful and sustainable writing career. These interviews are recorded live with our global writing community. If you would like to join us for the next recording or write with us at our daily Writer's Hour writing sessions, head to LondonWritersSalon.com for more information. In this episode, we speak with the award-winning journalist and the best-selling author Oliver Berkman, known for his book, 4,000 Weeks Time Management for Mortals. We talk to Oliver about his fascination with time, why we all seem to suffer from a lack of it, and how we might reevaluate our relationship with it and find space to work on the creative projects that we cherish. In this episode, we discuss Oliver's writing journey from journalist the feature columnist at The Guardian, to best-selling author. We talk about his process for ideating, drafting, and writing articles and of impact. And we get to the heart of the ideas in his latest book, 4,000 Weeks, such as why we procrastinate, what's at the heart of perfectionism, and why, strangely enough, it's liberating to know that we're insignificant in the cosmos and how we might use this reality to lead happier and more creative lives. Well, let's begin. We hope you enjoy our conversation with Oliver Berkman. And if you're loving these conversations and want to help support the podcast, please rate and review us wherever you listen to us. Each month, we give away prizes to our reviewers, things like mugs and stickers and other goodies. Plus, it's just a nice way to show us your love and to help keep us going. Thanks so much for listening. Welcome to the London Writer Salon, Oliver Bergman. Hi. Hi. Thank you so much for having me. It's great. I'm really happy to be here. We've been fans of yours for quite a while, and this is such an honor. We like, I mean, obviously we're speckled around the world, but we recently learned that you made a big location change from Brooklyn to the north of England. Can you tell us why, why you made that move? Yeah. I mean, looking at it in hindsight it turns out we're just another data point of people in like in the end of the towards the end of the pandemic relocating from cities to rural areas it didn't feel like you never feel like a data point right you feel like you're making a fully uh, autonomous individual decision but we moved at least for now who knows how long for from brooklyn to the north york moors where i am now people anyone knows this in more detail about 20 minutes drive from pickering in the Rosedale area. Uh, we did it because this is kind of broadly speaking where I come from. I come from York, really, the more sort of urban, suburban York, but not far away. My wife is American. Our son is a dual citizen. So, you know, it's an opportunity for him to be near his grandparents, to sort of be in a different kind of completely different place. It's all very cliched, isn't it? Wanting to get out to the countryside. But this particular countryside is very special to me and hardwired into my brain somehow. And then my wife, who's also a writer as well as an academic, was extremely happy to find somewhere, you know, big and green to work on her novel. So it's all worked out. It's hard to be a beautiful place like that. It's on my bucket list of places to visit. So we like to explore kind of your wider career. And for many people that starts as a, a young kid, maybe someone in university, and we were curious, what were your early writing ambitions, perhaps at Cambridge when you were an editor at the student paper, or maybe upon graduating? What, what did you hope for yourself and your writing life? 
I think I've been really almost sort of irritatingly kind of one track about wanting to be a journalist, not so much a book writer that has come later. But I remember, I think I was in junior school, maybe I think I was in junior school when I was sort of like put making and photocopying newsletters that I was trying to oblige my classmates to take. I'm sure they didn't, I'm sure they just threw them away. But, and I've sort of, I was fascinated with journalism specifically sort of all the way through and then through as through school and to, into university. Um, my teenage years, I guess, coincided with the beginnings of um, desktop publishing, which is now a phrase that has completely gone away. So it was, the, I've lived through the rise and the fall of this, but just the idea that you could take writing and do things with it in terms of layout and design, and you could do it all yourself and then print it out and have these kind of, this combination of the presentational side of it the graphic side of it with the writing. Um, what were my goals? I don't know. I think I grew up in a, if that's what you asked, I grew up in a household where the newspaper, specifically The Guardian, was like on the breakfast table every day. It was the sort of height of uh, authority and uh, trustworthiness. You know, it was the voice of the voice of truth. So I think it was hard not to pick up something like that. I just always really liked the idea of distilling things into a little, do a few hundred words and being able to be involved in the process of presenting and publishing and getting them out there. So, yeah. Thank you for sharing that. I'm curious. So many years have passed since then, and I suspect you have some sort of goals for this year. In, in the Atlantic, you said, I really, this stuck out to me, that you talked about how resolutions should not be at war with yourself. And I wonder when you, if and how you've been thinking about 2023, what kind of goals you've been considering. Yeah, it's really interesting because I I do feel like there's a real tendency, I've certainly fallen for it and still do to some extent for goals to be a kind of aggression towards yourself, right? It's like, well, I'm not adequate right now and these are the things that have got to change so that I can uh, become adequate and having one's self-worth wrapped up with one's productivity and creative output is a whole thing. Definitely my story, lots of people's story when we talk about it, but so I I try very hard in my own life then not to have the sort of goals that define all the time up to the achievement of the goal as kind of second rate and you're just living for the future you're not fully present in the moment but in terms of specific goals for myself i mean there are sort of specific work goals so there's so i have a i sold a new book proposal i certainly want to make a certain amount of progress on the book that i'm working on at the moment some of these online classes and events that I've been experimenting with and doing. There's a whole sort of path forward with those. But I guess sort of even more profoundly for me, or maybe more relevantly, I don't know, for people here tonight, is to do the relationship between work and the rest of life, right? It's to do with being sufficiently flexible about how I work that I can really be present in my family, my relationship, and my relationship with my son and all the rest of this while keeping forward motion going. So it's not like I've got a specific like outcome goal, but it's that desire to find the balance between making things happen and letting things happen. It's that desire to be disciplined enough to make real progress on these things without being so rigid that it doesn't leave space for serendipity, things like that. Not really a goal. Now I've just spoken it out to you. <laughs> but really helpful to hear actually, because you know we've been setting goals in the community. Many of us have been thinking about the year ahead. And I think it it helps sometimes to give us permission to be a bit lighter with ourselves, to 
add that flexibility when we hear someone like you. Yeah. And I guess, you know, there's a different kind of goal setting, which is like the goal for the day and the goal for the next three hours of writing and stuff. Those I'm kind of into, like really, really near term goals. I think they have a central place in what I do and a little bit of further planning, planning further out than that, but, but not trying to get into that situation where you're living for a future time. Yeah. I'm curious to talk about the work and the life and creating more space for family. It, I wonder if there's anything that you've done in the recent past, the last couple of months, that's created a shift for you or something you're experimenting with? Because I think this balance really resonates with a lot of us. Anything that's working for you? Well, here's an experiment that I've been doing, and it'll sound, it might be sort of far too in the weeds and specific to my household to be relevant, but like traditionally in our house, both my, me and my wife have a lot of flexibility over where, we, when in the day that we do our work, we're, you know, autonomous laptop people, like so many people these days. And traditionally, like I've done the early shift working and then I go and pick up my son from school and do the afternoon. And she's done the morning shift focusing on the parenting. And she works a bit later before we all sort of meet in the evening for dinner. I'm sure that's extremely conventional. So I've got it sort of drummed into my head that I have to get started by like 7.45 or 8 on the creative work for the day. Otherwise, all is lost because um, this is when my energy is right and my focus is right. And just for a number of very mundane reasons that I don't need to go into, we decided to basically swap this around and see what happened. And it was quite tough for me to sort of agree to that now I was going to not be starting work sometimes until like 9.30 or 10, which already seems to me like the day has run away and like, what am I even doing? But I really benefited from going through that because, yeah, it made me see that um, actually it's totally fine. It's like I, I can have these circumstances change. I don't need to become really sort of calcified in my writing routines. I think it's a big, I, I think we'll probably talk later, won't we, about sort of rituals and writing, writing routines and things like this. There's a dark side to them, right? Which is that anything you decide to do every day or something like that, you start to believe you have to do every day before, uh, otherwise you can't do the stuff. And it's been really useful for me actually to sort of make that switch against my circadian rhythms and against my sort of personal preferences and find that the world doesn't collapse. Mm. It's a nice, nice reminder, maybe permission for some people to, to try something new with your routine. Well, Oliver, we'd like to rewind a little bit back before we, because there's so much we want to get into with 4,000 weeks process. But, and like Parl said, a big part and how we came to know about you is your, your extremely influential column. This column will change your life that you wrote on The Guardian between 2006 and 2020. And I think everyone who knows you from those columns remembers the moment when they read their first Berkman column. And for me, it was in 2014. Everyone is totally winging it all of the time. And I love that. The vein of that article, there's a big picture of Obama and saying, yes, even this guy's winging it. And I remember, ooh, okay, this gives me permission. And this seems to be what a lot of your articles and your writing and your books do. But before we dig into that, I'm curious, is there anything that people would be surprised to know in the vein of this article, a very accomplished art, author and journalist yourself? Would there be anything that anyone would be surprised to know that you're winging at the moment? Maybe it's all of it, but is there anything specific you're winging? Oh, I mean, it, I know all of that post that you mentioned, that column completely applies to me all the time. Is there anything surprising? My assumption would be that it was obvious that I was winging everything from the outside, but I guess that's, that's not the case, is it? It's, like, it's always never the case with other people whose insides we don't 
we don't see. Something that was surprising that I was winging, I would say, I mean, I don't know, I would say that the, I think we did a pretty good job with this um, this masterclass that I just did in January and one coming up in March. I think I think we've done a pretty good job of making them look like thoroughly professional operations from the outside. And I am completely winging, gaining any understanding of business and how payment processes work and everything to do with money and anything at all to do with like how I handle those kind of back end functions and automated emails being sent to people. And I hope that it looks like I have a large and accomplished team working on this and uh, it's all very, it's very winged. Mm. But writing books is winging it every time as well. And I think it probably should be. I think something's gone wrong if it's too straightforward and easy for you. Mm. So that column in particular, and in your books, you, you have this uncanny ability, it feels like, as a reader, to dig under the skin of us as humans, as readers, and reveal a hidden but often obvious truth and display it to us in a way that helps us understand it better and helps us maybe make peace for whatever we struggle with, a doubt, a wound, something. And I was just trying to do an x-ray around what makes this work. And it seems that A, you're super curious about the human condition and human nature. And B, you have deep empathy and you're able to express these things in a certain way. I don't know if that resonates with you, if you would say the same about yourself, but I'm curious, these two things, curiosity about the human condition and also empathy to kind of articulate what you're feeling and what we're feeling. Do these things come natural to you or what if that comes natural? What if that has you, have you had to work at? It's interesting. That strikes me as an altogether too kind of um, pro-social way of describing my motivations, which feel, you know, rather more selfish in a sense. I think that what I am doing is writing about things that I struggle with or have struggled with fairly recently. I can't remember where I read this, but I, I love this notion of being kind of a half step ahead of the reader in the things that I'm writing about, right? It's incredibly important to me because it's true. It's not false modesty or humble bragging or something, right? That if I'm writing about imposter syndrome, say, in the case of the winging it thing, I'm doing that because I have struggled with this. I may still struggle with it. And the insights that I have to share, if there are any, are from, you know, that situation. It's like the things that I just find sort of I was thinking about this the other day, like, are there things that I find really easy and that I've never struggled with? And there are some, like, I don't know, like spelling. <laughs> well, I would never write about that because it's just so boring to me, right? It's, no, there's no struggle involved. There's nothing I need. And of course, there are people who really struggle and that's a different thing. But so I think it's, that's what makes things feel alive. And the great good fortune of writing that weekly column at that time, uh, so firstly, so regularly, and then secondly, as the sort of digital revolution as a whole, email and social media and everything started to sort of change how you interacted with the people who are reading that stuff. What was so amazing about that was that you could very quickly see, and I did very quickly see what was that things were resonating, that like that there were enough people out there, like sufficiently like me, that if I talked about these things in an honest way, and of course, even that is therapeutic, right? You benefit from just sort of sharing it in some ways, but there were enough people who would sort of also benefit from it and come back to me with uh, suggestions and rec reading recommendations and constructive criticisms and, and all the rest of it. So it all felt very natural. I think in hindsight, part of it was to do with the, the Guardian audience. I started off that column with a very sort of satirical, maybe even slightly cynical attitude towards the self-help that I was 
writing about and the world that I was exploring. And it actually turned out that the really fun thing to do when your audience is is the Guardian readership is not to laugh at bad self-help charlatans because they already believe that all those people are charlatans. It's actually to be sort of contrarian and provocative by suggesting there might be a few interesting and decent and true things in the self world of self-help. That's a much more sort of fertile and slightly, you know, confrontational in a good way thing to say to at least the sort of stereotypical Guardian reader. So I enjoyed doing that. And I think it was very useful in sort of connecting with people and realizing that, yeah, I mean, this newsletter I do now, people are always saying like, it's like, respond by saying it's like you're inside my head. And I'm like, that just shows that there are enough of us who are screwed up in similar ways, which is great. Because sharing that is, you know, knowing that other people are in the same boat and sharing what's worked for them and what's worked for me is just like, that's, that's the whole game. I'm curious, when you're writing about things that are personal, do you ever find you're a bit hesitant to share personal aspects of your life? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, it depends on the domain. I'm definitely hesitant to share writing about personal relationships. I do it sometimes, but I sort of, for some reason, I feel like I'm less qualified to sound off about that. I'm sure there's some kind of sex stereotypes going on in that in terms of like what men and women are supposed to write about and talk about. But parenting, I do write about and talk about in a personal way. But again, I'm sort of slightly reticent because it feels like every single week or month is like you still have to start from scratch in terms of what you understand about in terms of being a father. So yeah, I do. But it always it's always worth it when I do talk about stuff that I'm in any way reticent to talk about. It's always been like vindicated when I can do it. Yeah. I'd love to turn now to how you write the articles, a little bit about the craft of either the articles you've written even in your newsletter, what you're writing in the newsletter. Are there any key beats that you're trying to hit? Do you think about it that way? I mean, I can sort of try to put a shape on the whole process. And there is a moment in that where I'm thinking in terms of beats, I suppose. What I'm doing in terms of getting ideas for the column or for the newsletter and subsequently for books as well, but we can talk about that later, is is just really collecting and keeping lists of stray thoughts and keeping stray quotations and keeping little notes that are my responses to things that I've been reading, mainly in Obsidian for the apps nerds that there always are when you talk about these things, but it doesn't matter what app you keep them in. That's not the point. And it's a very messy. And I've found that it's really important to keep that system really messy. Too much organization imposed on a kind of storage system for ideas and for notes is lethal for me. I don't think it's necessarily that for everybody. And the really interesting thing I've always found is that an idea can hang around for a long time on one of those lists and in one of those systems before it's suddenly like the right thing to be writing about today. This is very intuitive. It's not a rational process to sort of figure out what is kind of popping out, standing out from those lists. The deadline constraint of the column was incredibly helpful because if it's like Monday morning and you don't have a good idea for a column, then you have to use one of your bad ideas. And you gradually learn that actually they're just as likely to be good columns that resonate with people or not as the so-called good ideas. So I can talk more about that process of identifying ideas if you want. But anyway, once I'm writing the column, it's a process of sort of dumping all the thoughts I have about it into a single file, going off and in some cases doing 
research to sort of augment that and make that longer. For bigger pieces, it would obviously be reporting and interviewing people and things like this. And then for me, it's all about the finding the structure. I sort of think in, people talk a lot about what they think in words or pictures. And I'm always like, no, I think in diagrams. I really have always thought in diagrams. So I'm thinking about like a newsletter piece will usually have like six steps from an introduction. And then I'm not always exactly the same ones, but you know, a way in the main point I'm making, the nut graph, as they call it in journalism, a couple of paragraphs that develop that in different ways, and then a sort of deeper or unexpected turn in the last bit. You know, it's, it, there's a certain formula, it's not rigidly followed. And so that's when I'm thinking, like, have I got the sort of four to six things that over the course of eight, 900 words, I'm wanting to hit. And the writing is, I don't want to say it's an afterthought, but it's almost just like putting some words on this framework. I know there are other writers for whom the specific form of the sentences is so central to the idea they're conveying that they couldn't separate them out in the way that that I do. Anyway, I can talk more and more about writing it and drafting and redrafting and editing if you want, but I fear that might be. I mean, I'm a little bit curious about the editing process, perhaps, once you've got that the first draft. You talk about the structure, you talk about how you, for you, once you've got the structure, you're not really thinking the writing comes easily to you. How do you know when it's ready? What are you looking for as you're editing your articles? Right. Yes. I, do, I should have said, by the way, a lot of that coming up with the structure, I just have to be walking while I'm doing it. So I'm like outdoors in any weather. And when I worked to the Guardian, where it was at Farringdon Road, where you could very easily get from my desk out to the one of those little parks around the back of um, Exmouth Market. And um, this was just, I was just there like, you know, half the day sometimes wandering around and uh, and coming up with these things. When it comes to the writing, when it comes to the sort of real, the, the actually trying to write the sentences that are, I expect to be part of the finished product, I'm not particularly good at write. I'm sort of slightly perfectionistic in terms of wanting, you know, a sentence to be right before I move on to the next sentence. I'm not so good at just like write the whole thing in some version and then and then tweak it. So it's relatively slow I, compared to some people maybe to get those sentences out, but it's also relatively close to the finished product. Then what I do and have always done and couldn't live without, even though the role of a printer in this process marks me out as a aging generation Xer, is to print it out, to print out that first approximately coherent draft and type it back in into a fresh file or a fresh part of the file from the printout. And as I do that, I, I've since discovered that there are a couple of people like famous, famous authors in history who've done this. So it's not just me being completely mad, but like in that process of typing it back in, I make huge amounts of changes almost without realizing that I'm doing it. It's kind of like almost without having to think about it. And the result is much tighter, I think, and more coherent. And it's just better in every way and if I just try to change it on the page, that doesn't work for me. So that's my one big secret of drafting and, re and editing. When is it finished? I don't know. Obviously, in most cases, not usually with the newsletter, but with columns and books, you you then have a sort of collaborative editing process that is essential. And it's to do with, the, you know, someone else who is really good, but hasn't been inside my head getting involved. Mm, love it. Love this inside, inside baseball. This is what we're <laughs> all about. I'm curious, real quick, before you move on, when you say you walk, are you dictating it into a phone? Are you, where are you capturing your ideas or are they just kind of marinating in your head as you walk? 
Well, when I mentioned that, I was thinking about the bit where I'm structuring a, a column or something and or a section of a chapter, and then I'm just like scribbling it on a piece of paper. But I do walk a lot in other contexts, and I do also make sure to have either, you know, a folded piece of paper or just my phone. And if I don't have my phone, I I just, yeah, I just use a text editor and, and just keep a list in there that I'll that I'll refer to later. I don't know. I've always set a lot of store by that idea of capturing, but not necessarily because I then go back and look at what I captured. It's more something in the act of taking it out of my head onto something else is really important. But then I'll probably just remember the ones that resonate the most rather than I don't have a, and I'm actually quite hostile to the idea of a very, very rigid process of like, okay, take all these scraps of paper, make lists of them. There's a natural filter in terms of what you remember and what you forget. Mm, love it. Thanks for giving us that inside look. Let's turn to your your book now. 4,000 Weeks, Time Management for Mortals came out last year and it really took the world by storm. We've been seeing it everywhere. We loved it. And some of the same principles that you applied to your columns, you then applied to this book and really got under the skin. Almost, you basically wrote this time management book that we didn't know we needed. <laughs> and essentially the premise is, you know, 4,000 weeks is roughly the age or how many weeks you'll live if you reach 80 years old. And so rather than focus on productivity, efficiency, life hacks, we should instead optimize our life for enjoying the short, precious time that we have. Where did the seed of that idea come from? Where, when, how did it arrive to you? Both this book and the last, the very first one was a collection of columns. So that was sort of written by the time I had to write it. But both this book and the last, although I didn't really realize it until quite recently, but the the process is not like a flash of insight where I figure out an idea that would be a good idea for a book. The the process is seeing that there is something that unifies all the things that I've been interested in recently, basically. So, and that's another place where the discipline of the column was just so beneficial because I got to sort of test things out with myself and and as well. And so in the case of this book, it was really kind of seeing that there were a whole bunch of things that were very sort of um, charged for me at the moment, these ideas of like trying to exert control over life and failing and what anxiety and worry are and my sort of tortured relationship with productivity and productivity techniques and and sort of seeing fairly gradually, I don't remember a sort of single epiphany moment, but actually like time and our relationship to time was the prism to use for this. And that I could see how that was different. There are already books, you know, plenty of books on the psychology of time. And I could see what I thought was a bit different about what I was wanting to do with that. So that's the sort of flattering way of putting it. It's like I, I, I intuited the through line in all my stuff. The less flattering way to put it is I think that both those books are, you know, if you didn't care about commercial success, you could have given them both the title, like, this is my life philosophy, roughly speaking, at the moment kind of thing. You know, it's like, it's sort of about everything. It's sort of, it's not, um, the, the challenge for me is always figuring out an idea, a focus for a book that that excludes enough for the book to not be about everything and have to be 10,000 pages long. And, you know, I'll never get it finished. And I'll be sitting on a park bench 20 years from now with like manuscript papers stacked up trying to interest passers-by. So yeah. And then, and then of course you very quickly, you begin to see that like, oh, well that's great lens because, because what isn't time, what doesn't come under time management if you think about it broadly enough. 
And so taking that lens of productivity and time management, but applying it to like the meaning of life was the way in there. Which is a very powerful way of approaching this subject. And I'd love to explore some of the concepts of the book. Uh, you're in a room full of writers and yeah, we, we all struggle with time and time management and perhaps our own mortality as well. So it's all relevant. I'd like to start with the idea of perfectionism. You mentioned it a second ago about you being a perfectionist. So perfectionism and versus procrastination. You talk about the relationship between those two. And there's a quote, if perfection is what we are aiming for, then we have already failed. Mm-hmm. Can you talk a little bit about how we might overcome our perfectionist tendencies and maybe address procrastination? Any reflections? Yeah, I love this topic because I feel like, you know, it's still the case. I think it's less the case now, but it's still the case that people think about of perfectionism as kind of the of a a flaw that isn't really a flaw. It's the thing you're supposed to say in interviews is your greatest fault because then you're not really telling them a fault, you're telling them something good. And I I feel like I've been aware for a long time, definitely since I sort of made myself very miserable in my undergraduate year, preparing for undergraduate exams, that actually, no, perfectionism, not to beat myself up and not to beat anyone else up who is a perfectionist, but it, like, it's basically all bad. It's like, it's, it's something to strive to let go of, not something to sort of secretly, secretly cherish, because it's sort of fundamentally opposed to reality. Nothing that you actually do in the world can meet those standards. And so you end up not getting started on on things at all. The relationship, I don't know if this is exactly what we want to talk about, but like the one of the relationships between perfectionism and procrastination is that a big part of the reason that a lot of people don't get started on projects is because for as long as you don't start a project, you can hold on to this fantasy of how perfect it's going to be or how well received it's going to be or how well you're going to acquit yourself and any kind of bringing something into the world requires by contrast you know automatically requires that it be imperfect things that things that exist in reality are imperfect by definition and that idea about you have already failed has been really powerful for me because you know, we get this message all the time about how you've got to be willing to fail. And that's the thing that people are very love to say in personal development circles. And it's true, you know, but for me, the really powerful idea is like, no, the really liberating thought is that if I want to live a completely perfect life where every single thing I do comes out perfectly and everybody celebrates everything I do and I get the approval of whatever it is, like that's already not happened. Like that's already, I've already failed at that goal. And it was always impossible to begin with. And it's not on me that I didn't succeed in that goal. It's because it doesn't belong to reality. And in that moment, when I get inside that idea, I'm just like, I just love that because that's when I'm just like my shoulders drop and I can exhale. And it's like, great, nobody can do this. So that's a great reason to do what we can do, which is get started and keep going with the things that we can do. There's a great quote from Donald Winnicott, the child psychologist, psychoanalytic pioneer who said um, what he spent a lot of time persuading his his patients that the catastrophe they feared had already occurred. Um, it's a really powerful thought that like, if you're paralyzed by anxiety because you feel that you need unconditional approval or something like that, like that's because you were already denied that at some point in your probably as an infancy or something and you survived. And here you are, and that's off the table. So just do some things. 
And if you're in that moment where you're, you know these things conceptually, say you're in the middle of a project and you're struggling to stay focused on your task, what have you done personally? What has helped you get through it, even though you know it conceptually? Is there anything, any practice journaling or I'm not sure, talking to someone? Um, yeah, I mean, I basically do morning pages every day. I'm sure in this audience, I'm in good company. can talk about that if you want. I have also find that sort of anything that really that really narrows the shortens the time horizon of what I'm trying to do is incredibly powerful so I write in the book you might want to talk about it about like you know the the power of working in very short bursts and then making yourself stop when the time is up instead of keeping going if you're on a roll and there's some really interesting research into why that can be a good idea I mean I'd love to hear a little bit more you do talk about it in the book it's very interesting well this is partly derived from the psychologist Robert Boyce, who wrote this strange book, How Writers Journey to Comfort and Fluency, that is only available on print on demand for £65 or something. And and uh, I wrote a column about it back in the day and wrote a bit about it in 4,000 weeks. He's got this argument, which definitely works for me, that you know we hear so much about the importance of getting started, and it's all true. But we don't hear so much about the importance of stopping, because people tend to feel that if you've decided you're going to write for half an hour or you're going to do 300 words or something and then you find that you can actually do more that's sort of got to be a good thing hasn't it like you just keep going if you've got the time or you've got the impetus the inspiration and he found in his studies of academic writers that like actually what's driving that a lot of the time is a kind of impatience and a kind of fear that inspiration will never strike again and so it has to be it has to be seized right now and um that you can't afford to stop and walk away and when I can do it, what I find, especially when I'm in a difficult stage of a writing project, is that if you can, you know, if several days have gone by and I'm not getting anything done, then I've got nothing to lose the way I see it, right? So 10 minutes would be better than nothing. And then I will literally maybe try to do in those kind of lowest moments, maybe, and of course, I'm a full-time, this is my job, right? So it should, ideally, it should be a day's work, but I will do like 45 minutes, 30 minutes even, oblige myself to stop and walk away and not do any more of that kind of work for the day, not necessarily just, you know, chilling out the rest of the day, but not that kind of work. And if you do that for a few days, what you I find anyways, you're is it becomes really exciting to get back to the work, right? You you execute some sort of judo move on your motivation because instead of staying with it until you're played out and then building it up into something that you fear the next day, it becomes this very tiny thing. You realize you did enjoy it in certain ways, and you sort of gradually can't wait to get back to it. And then you can start extending again the amount of time that you're putting into it. But Boyce had this very interesting observation that people, the most successful and most prolific academic writers were the ones who made writing only a moderate part of their lives. Even if they could, in principle, make it a huge part of their lives, they kept it, they kept it moderate. And for various reasons, this has the effect of wanting to keep making them want to keep coming back to it. I love it. I almost want to say it's like playing hard to get with your writing practice. Yes. Keeping it keen, keeping yourself keen. Mm. Yeah, it's funny. It reminds me of Jerry Seinfeld. I heard him talking about it and he said, you need a an end. You need an end to know when your writing is going to end. You sit down and write, but you need an end point. It reminds me of that. And there's, I don't know if you know about this, but we do something called writer's hour here, Oliver, and it's basically 50 minutes of silent writing and we make everyone stop. And oftentimes in the chat, people are saying, oh no, I can't believe the time's up. Yeah. But now it gives me a little more comfort to know, actually, maybe we're doing something good by saying, okay, this is when we stop. 
Love that framing. Yeah. And I think that discomfort that you feel when you do stop in that context is related to the discomfort that you feel when you don't let yourself be distracted by social media in a writing session, or when you go through the discomfort of starting, right? In all these cases, even though it seems opposite, because it's like, hey, you're writing, you know, it's already happening. It's the discomfort of like surrendering some of your attempt at controlling your experience. And so you're going through a difficult patch with your writing. It feels like you would be happier scrolling through Twitter. If you can ride that out and keep going, you'll grow as a result. And likewise with stopping, it's just that it seems it's it's more counterintuitive in the case of, of stopping. Yeah. I'd love to talk a little bit about the concept of settling. You talk about the inevitability of set, settling, and I hadn't ever heard anyone talk about settling in a positive way, in the way that you did. And you talk about the benefits of why we might settle for something, whether it's a, a person or a work or a project, career. And you quote Robert E. Gooding, who says, living life to the fullest requires settling. You must settle in a relatively enduring way upon something that will be the object of your striving. I wonder if you can talk a little bit about this idea and perhaps how it's been instrumental in your life. Is there any personal experiences you have of settling in your creative life? Yeah. And I, um, I like this topic and I always have to be clear about what I'm saying. Otherwise I feel like my wife's going to be mortally offended or something. The point is not that you should settle, although I put it like that at one point in the book, but it's that you are always settling in a sense anyway. So to go for the classic case, which is to do with romantic relationships, right? There's the idea that if you're sort of, you know, young adult and you're dating or whatever, you shouldn't settle, meaning you shouldn't commit to a relationship with someone who isn't like a wonderful relationship for you. You shouldn't settle for someone who isn't good enough for you. And it may well be that you shouldn't, right? In a specific situation, it's not, I'm not making the claim that we should all get married at 18 or something. The point is that if you decide not to do that and spend, you know, 10 years, five years sort of playing field and going on a million dates with a million people, that's a different kind of settling. You're settling for spending that period of time benefiting from not making a wrong commitment, but also suffering the lack of benefit of not being in a committed relationship with somebody and all the richness that comes from that. So it's just this idea that like everything is always trade-offs. And we're very strongly conditioned in our desire to sort of feel like we can get the upper hand on time. We want to think that we can truly keep our options open in some domain. And you can't actually ever truly keep your options open because keeping your options open is a form of closing down your options. So in the context of a, a job, right, it's like maybe you should or shouldn't take a given job or stay in a given job. But don't think that by not taking that job or by walking away from that job, you're somehow floating above the the world of trade-offs and opportunity cost. I hope this is coming across clearly. I, so I'm just trying to... It makes sense. It's just this notion that like any decision to do anything involves waving goodbye to all sorts of other possibilities for using that time. And it's only our delusions of not being finite that lead us to believe otherwise. And this is actually really, again, liberating and empowering, I think, because once you realize that you're always doing that anyway, the only question is, you know, can I do it consciously and make some wise choices in there? The idea of not making a choice at all and sort of hanging back from life is not really what you're doing. Like you're actually just in life, but in a 
but a sort of a, and a hanging back way. You're sort of failing to psychologically participate in it fully. So it's really good to see that you are always choosing, basically. You're always choosing between alternatives, whether you like it or not. I think there are all sorts of contexts, like even just in sort of what, what direction you want a, a story to take or something like that, right? There's all these these situations where it's like you're already in that finite flow of time. If you decide to spend another six weeks not making your mind up about something, you've decided to use six weeks in a state of indecision, you know, and maybe that's right sometimes, but don't pretend that that's not what you're doing. I guess that's all I mean. I like the approach. I like the reminder that we're always making a decision one way or the other. I would love to talk a little bit about a bigger topic of cosmic insignificance therapy. <laughs> uh, and I guess this comes from, you know, Matt and I, we're in this community of writers and we often think about what drives writers to write. When, why is it that we need to be heard? What is this urge? And in this chapter, Cosmic Insignificance Therapy, you explain that realizing that we're insignificant can be liberating. And I was just thinking, how is that so? Because we have writers in our community and including us who want to make a dent in the world. Yeah. We want to leave a legacy. We want to, you know, we all of us here in this room want to share our words in some way or form. But how do those ambitions sit into this idea that ultimately we're just a blip and the landscape of time and our existence can never leave a legacy? <laughs> well, I will make my case because I love this topic, but it's definitely the part of the book where I've received the most pushback, I think, because people are like, well, why do anything if it's all meaningless? But again, if you just sort of start from how things are, you know, it's not about me trying to persuade you to live an insignificant life. It's just about me trying to say, look, look, this is how it is, right? That, you know, even the whole of human civilization is a blip on the cosmic timescale, right? And then, and obviously an individual human life within human civilization is is nothing. If you say, if you decide that the standard of you're going to apply to whether you're, you're writing, to use this example, is is matters, is that it's going to sort of last implicitly forever. It's going to sort of echo down the centuries. However, literally no matter how great you are, like even if you're Leo Tolstoy, I can make you feel bad by just zooming out one more level, right? Because eventually you're going to get to the cosmic timescale when like Shakespeare doesn't matter. And so I think what that should encourage you to see is that like, if, especially for all of us who, you know, are not Leo Tolstoy, the, what am I trying to say? There's, there's, there's absolutely no reason to apply a standard this exacting on what it means to matter because it's just going to, it's not that things don't matter. It's that we don't need to define mattering as this kind of long legacy. I'm not sure that I can, or any of us could say why somebody who writes something and sort of profoundly moves a handful of his or her contemporaries and is forgotten about a hundred years from now. Like, I don't sure why you want to say that that didn't matter. That was a moment of experience that was changed by your contribution to it. And in the same way, you know, going even less grandiose than any writing, you know, when you spend time caring for a sick person or cooking a meal for your kid or going on a hike with a friend, like, you know, that you're doing something meaningful in that moment. Like if meaning means anything, it's that feeling. And yet, you know, yeah, I could still pop up from behind a tree on that hike and say like 300 years from now, it's going to mean absolutely nothing that you went on this hike. Fine. I'm sort of using the work of a philosopher called Ido Landau here, who wrote a great book called Finding Meaning in an Imperfect World, who's just like, well, that's kind of an arbitrary standard to bring to what you do. 
So why not experiment with letting go of it? Not because it, and it won't leave you as a sort of, in a sort of nihilistic heap of like, well, I'm not going to do anything. It should be like, great, freed from the need to know that my writing only matters if it is here in 200 years time. I can do my writing. And the moment that it crystallizes something for me, or it moves another person or anything like that, I can be like, it mattered. I did it. You know, I met the standard of mattering because I'm not using this wildly cruel standard as Landau puts it. You know, it's a, it's a cruel thing to put on yourself that your life will only matter if you reach the heights of uh, Michelangelo. So freeing. <laughs> Thank you, Oliver, for sharing that. It's very much so. And you said you, you got a lot of pushback for that. I've also seen it's one of the parts of the book that also has impacted a lot of people as well. Oh, cool. And I'm curious, are there any parts of the book that you feel like aren't getting as much attention as you hoped or you think should? Huh. Not really. I mean, I don't think it's like there's things that I I think people ought to take away from it that they're not doing. And a lot of the responses do seem to be a sort of holistic response to the whole thing. I suppose I do think in some ways the sort of... um the section in the book on collective time and community and the role of synchronized time and the rhythms that we have lost. I'm not saying I wish people gave it more attention. I'm saying like, I think in certain ways that is the correlation in a way in the structure of those chapters, because it could sort of be its own book. It's probably the part of it where I feel like I'm learning stuff the most myself, that sort of a very overtly relational side of time. And I don't think it's a surprise that, you know, people in sort of productivity circles, say, who are interested in this book really focus on the first half about managing overwhelm and beating procrastination. Those sections about sort of falling into sync with other people and the social rhythms of time that we've moved away from as a society, I think are slightly sort of harder to get into for me as well. And like, yeah, there could be plenty that could be unpacked there. On the idea of uh, collaboration and being in sync, I wonder if maybe you just touch briefly, because I almost did ask you a question about that, but it ended up going uh, falling further down. You talk a little bit about happiness, how when they did a study to see how happiness levels correlated with people being on holiday at the same time. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about why being in sync with other people can lead to happiness, greater happiness. Yeah, that was a really interesting research. Was a really interesting research from uh, Scandinavia. I forget which Scandinavian country right now, but um, Sweden. I think so. Yeah, we showed not just that people are happier when they're on vacation, which is kind of obvious, but that people in, let's say, Sweden are more happy the more other people in the country are on vacation at the same time as them, which seems kind of weird at first glance. But I argue in the book isn't weird at all because there are all sorts of very down to earth reasons why synchronization is going to leave people happier. You could imagine in that context, for example, that like knowing that the friends and the relations you want to see are, are also on vacation at the same time is a great thing. Being on holiday with everyone else in, at the same time as everyone else in the office so that like there's not a huge backlog of emails accumulating in your inbox while you're gone or people trying to like steal your job or the credit for what you're doing and all sorts of office politics. None of that is happening because everyone is out for the same period. And then just on a very mundane level, lots of us, I suspect, have this experience that I have a bit being really, really hard to organize for like two, three friends to find a time that works for all of them to meet for a, for a drink or something. That might be because you sort of work incredibly punishing shifts in a really um, hard job. But even if you're a kind of 
annoying laptop toting freelancey person like me who's got lots of autonomy over their time we each have autonomy over our time and that as a result we sort of fall out of there's no synchronization between us it's like everyone's got plans at other points or they work different parts of the day and it just never quite it's it's harder and harder to to find those rhythms and you contrast that obviously the cliche is with you know a more traditional more religious society plenty of disadvantages to those but you know if everybody is downing tools every Sunday or every Saturday for a Sabbath, to pick the obvious example, then you sort of can't help but have obvious times in your calendar to to spend it with friends or with family. There are sort of weirder things about synchronization at the individual level, like why people find singing in a choir together so uplifting or how runners in competitive races end up synchronizing with each other, even though it's not in their competitive interest to do so. So there's like that level as well. But just a lot of it is just obvious. It's like spend time with the people we like and love. They have to be on some kind of similar schedule to us. And that's sort of being eroded every day. And going back to writers now that Matt was saying we do, I did wonder when I read that section, whether that is part of it. You know, so many people around the world write, but we do it alone. And somehow when we gather together to write and we know that even if you don't go to the sessions, we do them four times a day you know that there are other writers writing. So you can always slip into that session. Maybe that's why it works. That's really interesting. I think the ways in which people are trying to recreate this in virtual spaces is really fascinating because it doesn't seem like it should work, but I think it really does. Yeah. Yeah. Love that. Thanks, Oliver. I'm curious, was there a particular tough part about writing this book? Any dark night of the soul moments when you thought maybe this might not happen? Oh yeah, totally. There's sort of several, I feel like. Um, and I think a period of it where I probably was relatively obnoxious to live with, to be honest. That's why I always feel like interviews like this should have my wife here giving a reality check about... Maybe we'll start uh, doing that. We'll bring partners in for interviews. <laughs> <laughs> They're people's partners. Yeah, I think it's a great idea. So, I mean, the first thing that happened was that like very shortly after selling the proposal, our son came along. So I had to negotiate all sorts of extensions to the contract because you just can't... I mean, it was just crazy for like a year or two having a, a new baby. But then, yeah, I did sort of get maybe halfway through the book, more than halfway, I think, maybe more like two thirds. And that was a point at which, although I had had a structure to begin with, it's really important that I had it. I came to a sort of crisis of faith in the last part of the structure. It didn't no longer seemed like the right direction to go. And then COVID happened. And, you know, I'd like to say I was one of these people who seized the moment of lockdown to become extraordinarily productive. But of course, that's not what happened because the preschool closed and everything. And it was like I had less time than before. But I did, I basically became, it was extremely um, base motivation that I was like, I really want to fulfill this contract, meet my deadline and submit the manuscript before like the global publishing industry collapses. And of course, the global publishing industry has done the exact opposite of collapse as a result of the pandemic. It's been one of the major beneficiaries and it's great and wonderful, but that wasn't clear. There was a, it was a period of a few weeks when it wasn't clear whether like any industry that existed was still going to survive. And obviously lots of people did lose their jobs and far worse even than that, but this wasn't a problem as it turned out for books. But I was that did sort of give me an enormous kick in the backside to do a version of this final third which was still not really the point. And then I was immensely helped by good editing, which we can talk about if there's time, if you want to, by good editors to 
see what it actually was that I wanted to try to say, but hadn't. And so I did sort of multiple versions of that final third and that was coming out of the dark night of the soul. But yeah, that was the, the inflection point, I think. And I suspect you maybe have to go through something like that every time you do a book. I don't know. I Maybe, maybe, maybe not. Maybe. I would love to go a little bit deeper into what you just said now about the ed- editorial process. What you said that your editors helped you see what it is that you actually wanted to say. What did that look like? What did you do in order to figure that out? It's a really weird phenomenon. I don't fully understand it, but I worked on this book with with two excellent editors, Eric Chinsky at FSG as the primary editor and Stuart Williams at Bodley Head in London as a very involved sort of secondary editor. And obviously most of that is just, you know, you submit a chapter or a chunk and they get back to you with some thoughts. And it's the, the sort of the detail of it is looks pretty mundane. You go in for a meeting and you chat about how it's coming on. I'm super aware that this is like relatively rare and that people are, you know, that the idea that like books aren't edited anymore is like a big, it's a big cliche in the, in the publishing world. But I was very fortunate in this respect, but what it added up to through their comments and their, their pushback on certain bits was like, I was pursuing a, an overarching view in this book that I hadn't fully articulated to myself at the first draft stage if you followed what I'd written in the first version of the final third, it was sort of flinching away in a way from, from where that led and from the sort of the full ramifications of the thing I was trying to say. And it wasn't that Eric or Stewart said like, here's what you should say instead. It's just that certain ways that they responded to a sense that it didn't quite ring true in that last third just caused me to be like, Oh, and I know exactly why that is now you say it, right? And it's because what I really want to say is this. And it was, it's funny because it really feels like the work was mine. It wasn't like I wasn't writing something they told me they they thought I should write, but it was all due to their, I don't know, it feels like, um, I don't know, I've never been to a chiropractor and I know they're sort of controversial, but it feels like someone expert who can just sort of like make one incredibly specific prod on a structure and then suddenly the whole thing's like oh okay yeah, yeah, yeah so that was really the magic part of that editing process amazing well one more question from us at the end of your book you list five questions to ask yourself and they're really powerful questions and we thought we'd just read them out loud right now and the question we have is which of these questions is speaking to you most at this moment but hopefully these questions are useful for people listening and watching too so number one, where in your life or your work are you currently pursuing pursuing comfort when what's called for is a little discomfort? Two, are you holding yourself to and judging yourself by standards of productivity or performance that are impossible to meet? Three, in what ways have you yet to accept the fact that you are who you are, not the person you think you ought to be? These are big ones. Four. In what areas of your life are you still holding back until you feel like you know what you're doing? And five, how would you spend your days differently if you didn't care so much about seeing your actions reach fruition? Oliver, these are huge questions. (laughs) They are, yes. Which of these, are any of these speaking to you at the moment? Are you sitting with any of these right now? It's a really, really good question. And I mean, as I say in the book, and as I think your presentation of them implies, right, it's not like you're supposed to come up with a quick answer for any of these. These are just like ways of working things loose and ways to sort of sit in the questions, to quote, is it Rilke? Yeah. 
as opposed to ways to come up with answers. Yeah. And don't feel, feel free. You don't have to answer that, but yeah, in the real case perspective. No, no, but I will say, I mean, in terms of which one is resonating, it probably is that number three. In what ways have you, I'm just looking at them here as well, by the way, in case people think I have them memorized. In what ways have you yet to accept the fact that you are who you are, not the person you think you ought to be? I, you know, I'm, I'm pretty sure that's a sort of lifelong thing. And yeah, I think, I mean, I, there's no need to go into sort of the full therapy detail, but I think that that is, that is something for me, that sort of sense of well, just like whose agenda is it that says that's how you have to change yourself? Is it an agenda you want to follow? Is it an agenda that anyone ever even actually has in the world for you? <laughs> or is it just some sort of weird historical artifact? Such beautiful questions. They certainly hit us quite hard. Thanks. Thank you for putting them in your book. Thank you, Oliver. And one final question from us actually is in lieu of all these things, these questions and maybe looping back to talking about goals. We like to talk about our mountaintop here, the thing or things that we're aiming at. You mentioned you just sold the new books, so you're working toward that. But if you were to look at the mountaintop of you, your career, I don't want to use the word legacy, <laughs> but what do you feel like is at the mountaintop for you? What are you aiming at right now in your career, your working life, your writing life? That feels like it needs an answer that is higher than something like completing a specific book or a, com a specific aspect of a business, doesn't it? It feels like something, if not legacy, then then something. I mean, where the real meaning for of it is for me is in the sense that these messages, which are totally not, do not originate with me. I'm a channel for them. Obviously, they're synthesized from all sorts of wisdom traditions, but like sharing those with people and having a sense from them that in this sharing, there's been some liberation, some sense that they are can go into the world lighter and more energized than than before. Getting that feedback, sort of spreading these messages, it sounds a little bit cult-like, I know, but like it's that that is the thing. So it's really just doing more of that, more honestly, and ideally to more people. That's what makes it all feel like worth it, is like individual connections and feeling like it opens something up for other people as well. Put it beautifully, Oliver. And what a thing to aim for for all of us as writers. So thank you for sharing and thank you for indulging us in all of our big questions. And thank you for your work again. Thank you for tuning in to the London Writers Salon podcast. If you enjoyed our chat and you'd like to join us for the next one, please visit londonwriterssalon.com for more information on how to become a member. As a member, you will have access to our interview archive, to our workshops, and our cozy online writing community. Whatever kind of writer you are, it is an excellent place to make new creative connections and focus on your craft. And if you struggle to find time to write, you're welcome to write with us at our daily Writer's Hour writing sessions. It runs Monday to Friday, four times a day, and all you need is the desire to write, something to write with, and something to cheers us with. We think it's the world's best virtual co-writing space for writers, creatives, or frankly, anyone who just needs to get some work done. Visit writershour.com to sign up and join us. Until we write again. Mm -hmm.